Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hi, this is Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So over the last few years, the history of the African-American contribution to American cuisine has been brought into sharper focus. The Netflix docuseries High on the Hog, based on the New York Times bestseller of the same name, published in 2011 and written by food historian Jessica B. Harris, charted the culinary journey from Africa to these United States. And although this journey is not news, the show is the first to capture the full story in such beautiful style. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. You might be the only one left in your neighborhood that hasn't, but it's a fantastic show. This comes at a time when black chefs are finding inventive ways to utilize traditional ingredients while inventing new paths for the cuisine to travel. Like Shinari Freeman, the plant-based chef behind Cadence in New York City, a vegan southern soul food restaurant who makes a black-eyed pea garlic pancake with pickled mustard seeds and sage maple syrup. Mm. I can't wait to try that on my next New York City visit. Or Chef Nita Compton, who's been a guest on our program in New Orleans at her Compare Le Pen restaurant, where she features a West African peanut soup with Merlotin, sweet potato and jasmine rice. And I had to look up Merlotin. It's a form of squash. My guest today, Chef Joe Randall, is known as the Dean of Southern Cooking. He is an inductee in the African-American Chef's Hall of Fame founder of the Chef Joe Randall's Cooking School in Savannah, Georgia. He is a founding board member of the Southern Food Alliance and the founder and former chairman of the Edna Lewis Foundation. Joe is also an author. His book, A Taste of Heritage, which was published in 2002, subtitled The New African-American Cuisine, is co-written with Tony Tipton Martin, and it's just full of delicious recipes, including a personal favorite of mine, corn pudding. My autographed copy from Joe sits nearby me in the kitchen at all times. Chef Randall was honored and featured in the Culture Expressions Gallery of the Smithsonian Institute at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., along with chefs Edna Lewis, Patrick Clark, Leah Chase, and Hercules, who was George Washington's enslaved cook. Joe's cookbook and his 40-year-old colander are on permanent display cementing his status as a national treasure. He's won numerous awards and accolades and has helped countless chefs and restaurateurs, including yours truly, with his guidance and resourcefulness. I am so pleased to welcome to Corner Table Talk my longtime friend, Chef Joe Randall. What's up, Joe? Hi, Brad. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Man, it's so great to have you. I'm really honored to have you here. So, Joe, we kick things off with our short order questions, so I'll fire a few at you. What is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? Well, I'm I'm old school, so Nancy Wilson is still my heart. I listen to Nancy and Nina Simone also. Oh, Between yeah. the two of them, they keep me going. You can't miss that Nancy Wilson saving all my love for you. Is, uh, I, I can listen to that all day, man. Yeah. Yep. Joe, what's your morning routine? Well, I'm a, I'm a breakfast guy. So I either get up and uh, my wife will fix breakfast or I'll go out. I got 
two or three restaurants that I join friends and have breakfast with them. We've been doing that as a routine over the last 20 years. So, you know, I just get the day out the way, see a few friends, have a good breakfast, talk whatever it is we're going to talk about, and then get on about my business, <laughs> figuring out what we got to do with the food today. And so speaking of breakfast, tell me, uh, and is assuming that maybe the weekend breakfast is a little bit different than the weekday breakfast, but tell me, what's your favorite weekend breakfast? Well, I've got an old-fashioned favorite. You know, a lot of people frown at the word liver, but I love liver and onions with some gravy inside of bacon and some grits and a good hot biscuits and a couple eggs over light. <laughs> that sounds good, man. Never, never mad at a good hot biscuit. How about the best live musical performance that you've seen? What comes to mind? Oh, my. Well, when I lived in Buffalo years ago, I, you know, I had a friend that was a producer, so I always got front row seats for people like Barry White, B.B. King, George Benson, all the guys that used to come to Buffalo, I got to see them. And, uh, but the, the spinners came one year and they did a round table and uh, they were just hot that year and I loved everything the spinners did. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, man. I'm a huge spinners fan. I can, I got plenty of tracks uh, of theirs on, on my, on repeat on my playlist. Joe, I don't want to make anybody angry at you, but is there a favorite restaurant of yours in Savannah that someone should not miss if they visit? Well, you know, Mashama is a phenomenal young chef who is doing remarkable things and I'm so proud of her. And I would suggest anybody come to Savannah to have that experience. Uh, I'm a little partial to Good Times Jazz Bar and Restaurant because obviously I've consulted with there since its inception. And the food is good because they're all my recipes and uh, I've trained the cooks. But if you come to Savannah and, and don't go to Good Times or don't go to see Chano and Mashama, and you missed the treat. Yeah, I would agree. The, the gray is phenomenal and uh, good times, Jazz Bar. We had a delicious dinner. I'm going to bring that up in a couple of minutes, but uh, you would not be upset if, if those were your, your two food stops in, uh, in Savannah, which is a really charming city. Um, Joe, where have you not been that's high on your list to travel to? Oh, my well, you know, I started out up and down the East Coast, mostly Central. You know, I'm born in Pittsburgh, raised in Harrisburg, and so Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, those were my stomping grounds. I'm not a real Midwest guy. I've been in and out of Chicago a lot, but the Central part of the country, there are places I've just never been. You know, I've flown in and out of Kansas City to a meeting, but never had a night out on the town, you know. So Kansas City is someplace I think I'd like to go visit. I've been in and out of Memphis, been on Beale Street, but never really spent time in the city. You know, Isaac Hayes had a barbecue restaurant there once, and Berta May and I both were there doing a cooking demonstration in Memphis in May. And I took her to Isaac's restaurant. We had a ball, but I just never really got to, to know the city. So some of that Midwest, because, you know, I flew to Seattle in the 70s. I went from Seattle to Sacramento, from Sacramento to L.A. So I kind of went up and down the East Coast, up and down the West Coast. But the central part of the country is someplace I need to spend some time. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. We, My wife and I drove uh, from New England down to uh, Florida a couple of years ago. And we stopped, of course, to see you. We stopped in Charleston. We stopped in North Carolina. And I'm, I'm anxious to see some more Southern cities, Nashville and places like that. You know, in the yeah. past, been a little reluctant to travel through the South, but uh, feeling a little bit more uh, willing to do that these days. Um, yeah, it's a, li a little different today. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, what 
is the best advice you'd say that you've been given? Oh, well, gotten a lot of advice over the years. And uh, as far as my career was concerned, it was always take pride in who I was and the kind of food I prepared. You know, I, I'm old school. The chefs that trained me, they were professionals. They looked at you, knew it the moment you saw it. And they taught us to be that way. You know, when we were coming up, the hotels and places we worked at locker rooms. So you wouldn't know who a fellow was out on the street, but we go in and change. And next thing you know, we were professional chefs or cooks. We put on our white apron, white chef coat and professional checkers or black pants. And that was the uniform today. So we took pride in the uniform. And I just try and tell you young people who are coming in the industry, especially to take pride in who they are, the way they look the way they represent themselves, take pride in the uniform. And I believe that'll carry over and they'll take pride in the food they prepare. I hear you, man. That, that, that's good advice from Chef Joe Randall. So, Joe, last one of these. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? And if you're going to prepare dinner, what, what might you make? Well, I've had a chance to, to cook for, for Edna Lewis, and that was a joy. She was probably the most, uh, one of the most wonderful women that I've ever met in my life. She was gracious. She was kind. She was considerate. And she truly believed in, she didn't have a lot of contact because when I met her, I introduced her to a lot of people. But in her heart, she was hoping they were out there. But so Edna was very somebody special. And, you know, uh, a dinner, Leah Chase, another dear woman. I had the pleasure of having both women in the same room at the same time I introduced them to each other. They both had been in the business over 50 years and they never met at that time. So that was a joy for me. But I've cooked for both of them and they've cooked for me. And uh, those are the kind of people that I just, uh, there are people I'd long to see now who are gone, dear friends, but those two are the strongest on my heart. You know, Leah was the queen of Creole cuisine and she loved people. She told me, Joe, once she said, you got to take what you got and make that work for you. You don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Just know where you're at and do the best you can. And I took that advice. Just kept moving. Yeah, we could we can answer the previous question with that one. Take what you got and make it work for you. I, I like that. Yeah. We can all use that one. And we're going to talk a little bit about Edna and, and Leah, too, shortly here. So let's jump in, Joe. How are you? Where are you? Are you in Savannah? I'm in Savannah at home. I'm fine. Um, my family is all vaccinated. I've got my booster. My wife has her booster. We've been doing everything we can to stay safe. My wife has a paralyzed diaphragm, so she has difficulty breathing. So nobody comes in my house without a mask. We're not really looking for any guests, but uh, we're just trying to be safe and keep her safe. My son and my daughter uh, who live with us, they go in and out, but it's always with the thought of keeping their mother safe and don't bring nothing back here. Right. Yeah, the mayor here has done a good job with everybody's safety on mine. The governor's a little different, but fortunately we had a mayor that cared. But uh, that's it, basically trying to stay safe and stay well. Yeah, that's good, Joe. So on that note, are things starting to return back to normal in Savannah, would you say? They are. Tourists are coming, starting to come. Summer is a little funny. People think of Savannah and think, oh, we're running Savannah on vacation, but it's 110 degrees down here with humidity. Smart people don't come to Savannah from July to June, July, and August. So October, November, when it cools off a little bit, we usually get loads of tourists. And we're getting our share now, but uh, they're tearing up Broughton Street 
which is the main thoroughfare, and that's where Good Times is. And so for business, it's been unfortunate that that construction has kept people from going downtown. They can't find parking, and the construction, it just, you, you know, you don't want to walk six blocks to get to where you want to go. But we're fighting through it. We have the same problem that, uh, you know, I talk to chefs and restaurateurs all over the country. Everybody's saying the same thing, staffing. There's a mentality about staffing now. I've never seen it before in my life. Yeah. So, yeah, let, let's touch on that for a minute, Joe. And, you know, I wanted to, I'll, I'll tie that into a, to ask you about how Good Times Jazz Bar is doing. As I mentioned, my wife and I had a fantastic meal and a, and a great time. The music was phenomenal. You joined us. The dinner was, was, was great. You treated me. Thank you very, you treated us. Thank you very much. So how has the restaurant fared during the pandemic? And, and as you mentioned, of course, this labor crisis that we kind of saw coming in our industry, right? A few years before COVID. COVID, but COVID yeah. has accelerated all and exacerbated all of the issues that were already in the pipeline yeah. for us. How has the restaurant fared and what's your general take on, on the labor situation? Well, I think it kind of helped us in one sense because it weeded out some of the people that didn't really want to be in the restaurant business anyway. So I think, you know, I always believe if you didn't believe in hospitality means taking care of other people. And if you don't want to serve other people, you really shouldn't be here. You know, people use it as a stepping stone. We know actors, entertainers have all worked through the restaurant industry, but at least they did their job, you know, and then they went on to, to their great careers. But these people that just don't want to work, you know, just there for a paycheck, don't take pride in who they are and what they do. They harm the industry because people go out to be made to feel good. And if you don't care about serving people, you won't make them feel good. If anything, you act like you're doing them a favor to serve them. So that's what it is. Overall, uh, when the pandemic hit, we started looking at how can we be safe? Uh, Stephen, the owner of Good Times, is a wonderful fellow. He and his wife, Danielle, they looked at keeping the staff safe. And then when they started talking here about, you know, social distancing and not allowing so many people in, well, it just destroyed any business plan that you might have trying to make a profit. Because if you don't have nobody in the building, how do you make money? So we were fortunate. Stephen owned the building. We just shut it down. And we were closed for 14 months. And then he said, we ready? I said, let's go. So we opened back up April the 26th. And we've been open ever since. We we looked at our plan. Instead of open six days a week, we shut it down to four. We've got five meal planned two days. We got dinner Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and a gospel brunch on Sunday mornings. And so it worked for us because, first of all, we didn't have much more staff than that. It was difficult to take care. We haven't fully opened our second floor yet because we just didn't have the staff. You know, and touching on a point that that uh, you you started with um, makes me think about you know you you mentioned that this was kind of a um, a weeding out period, if you will, of folks that really didn't want to be in the hospitality business. Although you know we have provided we provide a lot of jobs and uh, you know a, a good way to earn money while you're in pursuit of something else that you do. But I wanted to share an observation with you and just see if it was something that that resonated with you as well. I've noticed that the folks that I've that have worked with me over the years, regardless of what they ultimately wanted to pursue as a career. The job that they did while they worked with me was indicative of how successful they were going to be with whatever they were doing, right? The, the people, I, I knew there was a woman who worked for me as a hostess who now runs one of the biggest 
film companies in in Hollywood. She's moved right up through the ladder and she was a fantastic hostess. I mean, she was on time. She was dependable. She brought that hospitality thing. Have you noticed the same thing, Joe, that those that are effective are just effective? They, they put their mind to it. I, I totally agree with you, Brad. I think people who have an intention to succeed will succeed. But, you know, you, you uh, I just think it's about feeling good about who you are. Once you accept the job, you keep the commitment and you do the job. So usually when I hire somebody, I say, listen, there's only one thing I ask of you, do your job. So if you do your job, you don't have no problem out of me. There's no problem, no reason for us to have any confrontation as long as you're doing your job. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Joe. So let's turn for a minute. I want to I want to draw on your bank of knowledge as a historian. And uh, through you know the years, I've really enjoyed our conversations. And you know, whenever I have a question, if it's something I'm writing about or thinking about, uh, you're just like always at the top of my list as someone I need to call and, and check in with. But you know, I and I know that more recently there have been a few more. Um, culinary, African-American culinary historians that have, you know, have kind of come on the scene. But I would, I guess in, in the form of a question, Joe, would you agree that until recently, it's been hard to find documentation of some of the early African-American pioneers in hospitality other than firsthand accounts? Like you saying that you introduced Leah Chase and Edna Lewis that that kind of story, I don't know that that would have appeared in the New York Times or, you know, in, in any of the major newspapers. It's a great story. It's a great meeting. But somehow our stories have gotten pushed into folklore or hearsay or firsthand conversation. So I don't know. Is that me or would you would you tend to agree that that has been the case? No, I agree with you 100 percent. Let me tell you what happened in 19... 19- 1990, I was in Hawaii for American Culinary Federation Convention, and I met the editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and we became fairly close and talked. And that year, 1978, I guess Patrick Clark was on the cover. So I asked him why. You know, I said, I appreciate Patrick being there, but he's not the only one of us in the world. And he said, well, we only do stories about people who are doing something. And a spark went off in my head, and I said, I see. You know, and, and obviously during those times, there were very few of us uh, in those positions to, to to dictate what stories should be written. So I decided that's when I started dealing with the Taste of Heritage Foundation. I said, well, in the future, we'll be doing something because I knew at least 50 African-American chefs around the country. And we had met off and on at different conventions. So I started doing those dinners. And I was fortunate enough to have Patrick Clark, Edna Lewis, Leah Chase, and uh, people like uh, Bernard Camus, who worked for, for Emerald. Uh, I had um, Ernest Bell, who worked at the Drake Hotel in Chicago, and then went on to work at the J.W. Marriott and places like that. So these chefs came. Another young chef who had gone to the CIA, Clifton Williams, he's gone now. Uh, and a lot of them are gone. But I pulled these guys together and we did six course dinners featuring African-American chefs in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you recall we did a dinner at the Lamentage in Beverly Hills with all African-American chefs. We were fortunate Patrick Clark was at Beaches in Beverly Hills then. But I just found that if I did those dinners, got some photographs, and did a good press release and sent the information out, they would print it, and they did. But they weren't working for it. 
They weren't going out trying to dig it up. In 1984, there was an article, and I saw a very similar thing the other day I want to share with you. 1984, there was an article in Restaurant Institution magazine called A New Breed of American Chefs. There were like 21, 22 chefs in the article. There was not one African-American chef in the article. Well, I looked at it and fussed, and finally I wrote the publisher, and I told her this was typical of the way American history had been written, as if we were invisible. She wrote back, Amos Wallace, I think, she wrote back and told me, thank you for the gentle reprimand. But she told me, you know, when I sent her that, I said, here's a list of 50 personal chefs, friends of mine, African-American, should you ever decide to do another story. Well, the person, Nancy Ross Ryan, who did that story, had been uh, told to do another story. Well, you know how somehow they get it twisted. We weren't asking for an exclusive black story. We just wanted inclusiveness. So Nancy called me. She, she did, We got together and she did a story, Black Chefs in America. Well, it was a wonderful article, but all my white chef friends were wondering why none of them were in the article. But they didn't have a problem with the first article where there were no blacks. So they don't mind being included, but they don't understand being excluded. No, it, that takes a certain kind of um, uh, muscle memory to uh, develop a little, uh, you know, not not getting upset every time you're excluded. And, you know, I, I want to come back to this. But uh, before we do, I wanted to dive a little bit into your background just because, you know, you're again, you're just a such a valuable resource. Now, you you started, you had an uncle, I believe his name was Richard Ross, who was yes. a caterer and a restaurateur in um, your home state of Pennsylvania. I believe this was in Pittsburgh during the 20s, yes. 30s, and 40s. Now, for someone like myself who has been in the business as long as I have, and I have looked for documentation to find, you know, to try to chart history. I wrote an article not too long ago that tried to do that, and it is not easy to find. But here's a guy in your family who was a restaurateur and a caterer in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. What can you share about him? Well, he was, he came up from Virginia, um, and from Virginia to Pittsburgh, that's Western Virginia, out near uh, Danton, Waynesboro, in that area. Obviously, he had worked at a country club or something there and learned some skills, but he got into Pennsylvania and became a caterer. And then eventually, you know, there was a time when you owned a hotel maybe or a club, before you own the restaurant, you serve some food. He owned a large hotel, which was a small hotel, maybe six, ten rooms. But they had a dining room and a lounge. He actually had a, a bar in the lounge because I remember Chuck Jackson singing there as a kid. And uh, so he was in the business, you know, but he catered. And, you know, typical, he put everybody that came near him to work. So I end up, you know, washing dishes busting tables. My sister said, whoever was near him, he put you to work if you hung around long enough. So, but we loved him. He was always respectful. He fed us good, made sure we ate. And uh, my Uncle Dick was just a special guy. He was a big man, about six foot six, weighed 350 pounds. And he had some peculiarities. He didn't smoke, didn't drink, but he was in the business. My sisters hated it because he, you know, he make them you're dressed too short, you know, straighten up when you walk. You can't smoke around Uncle Dick. Put that cigarette out quick. Here come Uncle Dick. So he was very firm in how he thought we should carry ourselves. But as a restaurateur and a, a manager, he was just very gentle. And he taught me to, he gave me a tease for the business. You know, he gave me a little tease by being with him. 
And I mean, he was catering parties for mostly white folks because they was the one who could afford to pay him. And, you know, it's just so important, Joe, to have that that model to pattern, right? If you don't see somebody that looks like you doing something, yeah, you, you might decide to do it anyway. But boy, it's, it's a different connection when you see someone that looks like you doing something that uh, you then find yourself inspired to do. I wanted to also ask you about Robert Lee, who was the executive chef at the Harrisburger Hotel. And you said he was the first African-American executive chef in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, from 1939 to 1967. And you also mentioned, I, I thought this was interesting, too. I read something that you said. You said there were young white cooks who didn't want to work for him. He brought Atlanta-based cooks who had already worked for him to Pennsylvania and ran the hotel with an entire African-American crew. It's, it's so true. He... um. There, there was, you know, there were hotels in the Harrisburg area at that time that had, because uh, the, the white chef that I worked for named Frank Costelli crossed the street. And I'm not leaving Chef Lee, but my point was they had separate locker rooms and Frank Costelli broke that up. So that's how segregated it was in Pennsylvania among the cooks. They didn't want to work for Chef Lee. And if they worked for a white chef, they didn't want to even change clothes with the black cooks. But Chef Lee, he, he was smart. And when I say that, he got the job because a white European chef called one of the black cooks a name, the N-word. And the cook went off on him. And uh, when Mr. Johnson, who owned the hotel at the time, came to work out what was going on, Mr. Johnson found out what he had done. He fired the European chef on the spot. He looked at Chef Lee and said, can you hold this kitchen down? Chef Lee told him, say, I want to hold the kitchen down for one month. I don't want you to pay me at all. Say, but if you think I'm doing as good or better job than that other guy, pay me the same salary you was paying him. And Chef Lee was one of the highest paid chefs in that area, all during the 40s, 50s, and 60s for that firmness to make sure he got his worth. So he was. that's why I say he was smart. They taught me things like, if you're going to be a caterer, you know, never be afraid to charge because people think you don't know what you're doing if you charge too little and they'll go pay somebody twice as much because they think they, they know more. So you learn some lessons and that's, it hurts my heart because some of these people today, they, they want to teach themselves and they don't think you have no value or they want to pick your brain and then act like they taught themselves so they don't have to give you credit for it. That, that, that is one of my least favorite things to be asked of me is, and that is to pick my brain. That just means you want some knowledge that I have for free and you won't remember that That's I right. gave it to you. So <laughs> there's no value in that for me. You do everything you can to forget. Right. <laughs> so Joe, Black Americans held a lot of those jobs during that period, you know, the, the hotel jobs and the kitchen jobs. And we seem to have given up our presence in that industry, in that side of the industry has severely diminished through the years and given way to other, you know, immigrants and, or, or immigrants rather, or others will just say. But what happened? Why do you think that uh, a lot of us left the hospitality industry as cooks and, and front of house folks when we were, you know, really, really well trained and, and I think prepared to move to perhaps another level in the industry? We, we kind of disappeared. Brad, it's a wonderful question and a question that I'm happy to answer. People forget this is hard work, long hours, and it used to be low wages. And so I remember the first job I got when I got out to service in 1964 was $60 a week for 90 cents an hour. They gave me a 10 cent raise to a dollar an hour, patted me on my back like they gave me a $100 raise. You know, it, it was low wages. 
And so this is what happened. 64, we had the Civil Rights Act. 65, we had the Voting Rights Act. And I can hear, I can hear it right now in my ear, civil rights leaders and other people who saw those doors opening saying, we don't have to work in your restaurants no more. They didn't run us out. We left willingly as soon as the door opened that we could go in. I taught it several colleges in the 80s and 90s. I taught at Cheney and I taught at Morgan State. I had a mother come to me in Cheney, a grandmother, tell me I didn't send my baby here to be no cook. I sent her here to be somebody. You know, we were getting away from this thing because we thought it was just menial and it was domestic work. And that's the other part. Prior to 1977, the U.S. Department of Labor classified chefs in America as domestic workers. And so I don't know nobody sending their baby off to college to become a domestic. So nobody was encouraging their kids to get into, you know, all of us. Got an aunt, uncle, somebody who talked about cleaning white folks' floors. Well, you don't, you want your kids to do better than you. So that's where a lot of that came from. We were staying away from the restaurant entry because it was long hours, low wages. We wanted our kids to do better. We encouraged them to do better. I worked with waiters who had been booming car porters working on the railroad. You know, they knew what it was to be discriminated against, but they also knew the advantage that they had. They used to get tipped silver dollars. Nobody knew how much money they made. You know, they would go home with suitcases so heavy because everybody flipping them silver dollars. And uh, if you look around the country in the history, at one time being a Pullman car porter was the best paying job in the country for an American black man. So that's pretty much what it was, Mm -hmm. Brad. So it was a a voluntary withdrawal based. That there were some new doors, some new avenues opening. You know, I can remember OIC, some of those anti-poverty programs and things. All of a sudden, they're looking for executive directors, black people who getting jobs as a director instead of a janitor. You know what I mean? I mean, I know people had degrees, couldn't get couldn't get nothing but janitor's jobs. You know, because those doors were not open to him. Mm-hmm. But once that stuff started opening up, you know, my father was a doctor. He graduated from Howard University in 1931. He was in college all during the Depression. That meant to me, my grandfather must have had some money to keep him in school. You know, and so uh, it was just a positive thing when you think about it. And then he was another example. I never heard anybody speak to my father or my uncle, to Uncle Dick. With, without speaking to him with respect. So I never had a concern about being a chef or being a doctor. Both black men were treated with respect. My father was a civil rights fighter. He was an elk, he was a mason, he was a Q, and he was treated with nothing but respect. He died too young. He fought from 1949 to 1959 to get the first liquor license for a country club in the state of Pennsylvania. He got the license in June of 59, and he was dead in September of 59. Mm. 54 years old. Mm. Was this Pittsburgh, Joe? That was in Harrisburg. Harrisburg, okay. We had 50 acres outside of Harrisburg, which was the country club. Had a swimming pool, had a few horses up there, had cabins. But from May to September, it was the place black people had to go, could go. And nobody couldn't say nothing about what they did because it was private property. And we had, you know, everybody. As a kid, I remember Ruth Brown and all kind of entertainers used to come up there, family reunions. So I've been kind of around this hospitality thing all my life. (laughs) I would say, yes, you have. So, you know, Joe, switching back here to, to allude to what I brought up in the intro, Black chefs and the cuisine most closely identified with African Americans is enjoying a moment of unprecedented 
interest. And by that, I mean James Beard um, has made some changes over there. Bon Appetit has made some changes over there. I know your uh, your co-writing partner there, Tony Tipton Martin, is now editor uh, of a magazine yes. as well. And on television, on PBS, every week. Every week, yep. Yeah. But the industry has been slow to acknowledge, and I think these developments should help change that. Um, clearly, there is still work to be done for this moment to sustain and not disappear into the next news cycle. But I'd like your take on history here. I recently read an article published a couple of years ago in a national hospitality trade magazine that I won't mention, but it provided a timeline from the early 1900s through 2019 of prominent developments in the food industry. In it, they list Brennan's in New Orleans and Chef Paul Perdome's K. Paul, but no mention of Leah Chase or Edna. And as you mentioned, you know, Edna Lewis, known as the, the grandmother of Southern cooking. And of course, you know, this this was not they didn't profess this to be the, um, you know, be all end all timeline. But it just really struck me that even a national magazine could publish a timeline and leave out in 2019 these most influential African-Americans. So how would you rewrite this timeline? Where would Leah and Edna fit into that discussion? Well, both of them. I mean, Edna was in New York in the 40s, 48, 49, working at Cafe Nicholson. She was being called a chef when they didn't even give the title to black men. You know, we were cooks. And uh, if we got to be the chef, it's because, as I said, they got rid of the European chef and just gave us the job and the title for usually half the money they was paying him. But Edna, uh, being in New York, got exposure that uh, most blacks didn't get. A lot of blacks didn't, 20 years ago, didn't know who she was, had never heard of her because they weren't buying her cookbooks and they weren't familiar. They weren't eating in the establishments that she was involved with in New York. Leah started working in Dookie Chase's in 1946. It went from a sandwich shop. Leah wanted fine chairs and she wanted black people to have good china and good silverware. And that's because they weren't allowed to go to the French Quarter and eat anywhere. This was pure segregation. And so uh, it's just typical of the way when you have uh, an editorial board that's all white, they, they write about the people that they know. You mentioned this article in what, 2019, yes. what I said a few minutes ago when I was talking about that 1984 article. I read online the other day a story about 35 older chefs in America. Jack Pepin was one of them. I went through the whole list. There was not one African-American on that list. That was just two days ago, Brad, I read that. And they mentioned everybody and their mama that's been in the news for the last 30 for 30 years, but they didn't know one black that they could add to that article. In hindsight, surely Edna wasn't mentioned. And you know, the reason I started the Edna Lewis Foundation so that she wouldn't die. Wasn't nobody talking about Edna in 2012 when I started that foundation. But now everybody in their mama want to be a, want to figure out a way that they can mention Edna and they can do better. I spoke at Leah's funeral. And I've encouraged everybody that I know and anybody that hears this, if you get in New Orleans, go to Dookie Chase's and support the family. Her daughter, Estella, is running that restaurant and doing the best she can. But we need to support uh, those places that have been around because they're dying off. And after a while, there won't be none. 
Well, Joe, I, I, we all have you to thank, man, for um, not just your, your culinary expertise, which um, you know I'm going to dig into in a second, but you know the fact that you have been just a great connector. You, you're such a no ego. I mean, I, we all have egos, so I, I and I know you know you you have one too. But you're not one of those people who separates or doesn't want to give the accolades to. You look for opportunities to bring people together and to acknowledge those that are doing things. And and a lot of times, man, through the years, you've been the only one that uh, that has been that voice. So you know, I, I just really want to thank you for that, Joe. You know, I'm happy, really happy, Joe, to see Black chefs get noticed. I've read where you've mentioned that there is a need for more Black managers to pave the way for Black chefs. And I would agree with that. But I'd add to that the outsider status that we as Black restaurateurs, not chefs, but restaurateurs, have had to contend with. You know, I only was recently referred to as a restaurateur and I felt like it was they were, you know, finally, you know, I've been in the business for you know however long and finally I, I got that title. But, you know, not being recognized keeps us off of TV shows and doesn't afford us a level of prominence or opportunities that could serve as a beacon to attract other African-Americans in our footsteps and highlight our value as opportunity providers. And I'll add to that, the burden the restaurateur takes on is substantial, and the nuances a Black restaurateur navigates are unique. Our experience that I, that you and I had at Georgia was like a highlight film for the unique nuances of this business. Yes. But what's your take on that, the, the restaurateur in this mix? Well, Brad, you understand it as good as anybody I know in this country. You don't become a restaurateur without an understanding of finance and some good backers. The best chef doesn't mean he's a good restaurateur or a good manager. He's just a good cook, and he's got the title. He can run the kitchen, but, you know, it takes a little bit more than just cooking to, to operate and manage a restaurant. To understand finance, we have pigeonholed ourselves and I've got some people out there who I don't want them to misunderstand me. I'm not casting stones, but we have unfortunately backed ourselves into a corner that if we're not careful, they won't let us out of with this term soul food. African-Americans have been an intricate part of developing Southern food in this country. Southern food has been a dominant part of American cuisine. Soul food is a part of the contribution, but not the totality. And so along with soul training, soul music, we have bought into soul food. Some of these young people, you know, they're 30, 35 years old, Brad. That's all they know. So when they look up, they're talking about, I'm a soul food cook, and somebody will push them in the corner. Nobody's going to give them 3 $4 million to open up a soul food restaurant because they don't believe nobody coming to it. But they'll give a white boy 3 or $4 million to open a southern restaurant, and he'll be serving fried chicken, pork chops, collard greens, and they love to put okra on the menu now. And they think nothing of it. I'm going to share this with you. I'm happy James Beard is making its turn. I'm not angry, but Edna Lewis was trying to get me to do a dinner at James Beard. In the late 80s, they told me that they had just had a chef do a Southern dinner and they didn't need no more. In other words, they thought that I was going to automatically come in. They didn't say soul food because... People don't know Edna never once returned, referred to her cooking as soul food. She always said she was a Southern cook. But we have to be careful allowing them to pigeonhole us and then wonder why we can't do the things that we want to do on the same level that they can do. 
Excellent point, Joe. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, but not surprised to hear about that uh, that James Beard, you know, snub, if you will, because um, you know they they have had some some challenges. I think through the years, really fully appreciating <laughs> the uh, the breadth of the uh, the African American contribution. But uh, as we both noted, they're they're trying to make some changes there. So hopefully, yes, they are, and we're, and we're encouraging them. Yep, they're on the right path. Well, thank you for uh, for for that. And um, I wanted to wanted to bring up a, a another little Edna Lewis tidbit because you, when we were opening Georgia in in Los Angeles back in the nineties, you came to the rescue for me with that restaurant. And we had had some challenges early on with a chef that we had brought on who did not have the same vision uh, once we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't find this out until we opened, but didn't have the same vision for the food, we'll say, you know, after we opened and you stepped in. We tried to get Edna out there, came very close. Unfortunately, she had uh, a setback, a personal setback and wasn't able to make it. But when you think about about Edna, Joe, as kind of the the preeminent Southern Southern chef, what what was it about her food, Joe, that just really, when you tasted it, just made you go, you know, shaking your head and and just food that you just remembered was her food? Because I never I never had the pleasure of eating anything that she made, but was her food just that outstanding? Well, it was it was a process. Edna grew up when you took your time and did it right. She wasn't the shortcuts. See, too many people, uh, you know, I've got a son, he loves to cook, but he'll tell me, I ain't doing all that. It takes too long, you know? And he, he cooks well, but he'd cook even better if he just fell in love with the process. Ender was in love with the process. If it took two hours, she'd take the time and do it right. And you could taste it when you tasted her cooking. You know, she'd blanch green beans and then saute them. That takes two steps. Just throw them in the water and put them on the plate. They don't taste the same. And that's what it was. She believed in the process. You have a recipe for one of my favorite dishes in uh, in your book for corn pudding, and I love it. And Edna also has one. And I think there's just one ingredient that's different. I think you have cornstarch in your corn pudding, if I'm not mistaken, and Edna doesn't. What what does the cornstarch add, Joe? It just helps it thicken up. It's a thickener just a little bit. That's all. You know, if you take the time to cook it slow and with enough heat, it will thicken. If you get in a little bit of hurry, a little cornstarch will thicken a little faster. Yeah. And that's really all the difference. Got you. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that next because I, I I really love corn pudding, man. And I've had some yeah. success making Edna's well, When it's right, when it's right, it's, it's good. Oh, so good. Yeah. Breakfast, dinner, it doesn't really matter. So, Joe, how did it feel to be honored at the Smithsonian and along with the most esteemed African American culinary luminaries, your, your rightful place, I might add. But what did that honor mean to you? How did that feel? Well, it was wonderful, Brad. I, it's one of them things you don't anticipate, don't think going to ever happen. The one thing that was most joyful for me, I wasn't there just with other black chefs. I was there with three dear friends of mine, Edna Lewis, Leah Chase, and Patrick Clark. These weren't people I met in passing. These were people that I cooked with, that I have in their homes. I loved their families. They met my family. You know, when Patrick moved to California, I brought his family to my house to bring his kids so they'd have some more kids to play with. I drove to Virginia when Edna retired to go meet her sister and, and her brother and be with her family down in Orange County. And Leah Chase, oh my God, I've, I when I first started teaching at Cal Poly, Leah Chase was the first 
distinguished guest chef to visit the school because I asked you to come. And she was there in a heartbeat. She taught a class open to the public. My students did a lunch for her. And then we did a dinner for 150 people that night. And she was there from 7 in the morning to midnight. And she was 70-some years old then. So it's just wonderful people. And then they stood for something when you talk about American cuisine. Leah was the queen of Creole cuisine. Edna, the grand dam of Southern cooking. And Patrick showed people what it was to deal with American regional cooking. You know, he had learned in France, but when he came back, he started that American cuisine revolution in New York. And so all three of them made their mark on food in America. And I'm just proud to be there with them. Well, you're kind of the connective tissue there, Joe. And, you know, Patrick Clark um, made his name initially in New York at uh, Cafe Odeon, Keith McNally's famous restaurant. We had Chef Preston Clark, Patrick's son, on the program not too long ago, who, of course, spoke very, very warmly of, of memories of you and his father together. And yeah, it was, that was a great conversation. He's a very talented chef in his own right. Oh, he's Preston. a dynamite young man. And the one thing Preston didn't do was get caught up in the hype. He stayed true to being a chef, and I'm so proud of him for that. When he was in the CIA, after his father died, we tried to encourage him. He thought about quitting one time, and we encouraged him to stay there and get his degree. And then he was fortunate being in New York. He worked at a lot of good places under good chefs. And that's the thing, unfortunately, African-Americans don't understand. You have to work for somebody who's good to pick up those skills. You can't get it all in a school. And so we don't, unfortunately, we don't make the relationships. And this had nothing to do with color because I worked under an Italian chef who was wonderful teaching me. But he took the time to teach me because he knew I was sincere and wanted to learn. And so I would be there on my own time when he was doing something so I could learn it rather than say, time for me to go and I'm out of here. And then everything that happened that I didn't learn. You know, I just do without it. No, I made every effort to be there so I could learn the things that he was trying to teach. And they just need to learn to build those relationships where they can gain knowledge from people that have the knowledge. That's right. And, you know, to to your point about Preston, Joe, he, you know, he's a handsome guy with pedigree, great name, great family name. He could have easily opted to try to do a little more TV and, and build himself up that way. But he, he made a point of telling me he wanted to be good. At his craft, yes. and he has focused yes. on doing that, and, and he's just sensational. I really enjoy talking yeah. to him. He earned a title, Chef. Nobody gave it to him. That's right. That's right. So yes. we're winding down here, Joe. And, you know, man, you have such a, and have always had such a warm, kind spirit. And we've all been through a lot these last couple of years. The news cycle's been tough. Yet, anytime I picked up the phone or texted you, you know, it was just always that spirit, man. How, how do you maintain that, Joe? Well, Brad, I've been blessed. And I mean, I know God for myself. God's been good to me. People don't know. In 1980, I had two nine-hour operations. I sit here before you with one thyroid. I have, in 1992, they took my right kidney. In 2016, they took a piece of my left kidney. So I got three-fourths of a kidney. So I'm thankful to be here. And I just don't see any reason not to be. 
joyfully in my heart and love people because I want to be loved. Well, it, it shines through in your spirit, man. And I and I am one to, you know, I, I just so value uh, you, our relationship, my best to Barbara, the kids, man. Happy holidays to you, Joe. Same to you and, and, and your son. And thank you so very much, Brad. You know, from those days when I would introduce you to somebody like Prince, who we didn't get to talk about, who was a joy to be at Georgia, you know, Prince was a wonderful guy. But all through the years, we've always had some warm, wonderful moments and I cherish them and I'm sure in the future we'll have some more. Good seeing you, Joe. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate being here. Nothing but respect. Same here. So here we go. How we move. Ambassador Shabazz, what's going on? How you doing there, my brother? You know, I'm good. I'm good. No no aches and pains that uh, are worth complaining about t- today. <laughs> my me. head feels right. Um, you know, it's all right. You? That's, you real, that's a measurement when you get to be a certain season <laughs> that's right. space. <laughs> yeah. I, I will use seasoning in the context of food, culture, yes, yes. and drink. Yeah, well seasoned. Yes. Season ends. Season ends. You know, know, I have to say that when I'm sitting in the wings listening to your guests and the podcasts that and the content, you know, it really corner table talk should be a one on one curriculum on uh, history and the dimensions highlighting, you know, culture of hospitality. It's not just food. We're not just talking about digestion, right? It's really the the industry as a whole, the journey for the restaurateur, the ambiance, the chef, the menus, the stories, who connects who. We underestimate the value of that table, right? All that goes on. I mean, when people choose a spot, they're not just going to a spot. They're going to surrender for a moment in a place that they've entrusted to host them, you know? And so just moving it quickly, I think we need to return to some semblance that generations ago when we were young, the experience was not so fast. I mean, you can have fast food or you can have good food fast. I mean, somewhere in there, you're still going to get the texture of the host, of the experience, you know? And so for me, that's listening to Chef Joe Randall and also knowing your relationship so fondly with your dad and knowing that you have access to, you know, other men in the industry, male mentors in the industry to just sort of shop talk and share and exchange and reflect is really warming for me in the absence of your father not being here physically, that they scoop you up, you know, and you get to extend, you know. And so one of the things when he closed towards the end, he said, he said, I know God for myself. (laughs) And I just love the affirmation and the certainty. Do we know that at 20? Do we know that at 40? Do we know that at 60? You know, when do you know God for yourself? You know, (laughs) you know, and that how you walk this journey has its own tally of wisdoms that are that are gathered. But you do so as a student of that journey. And he's just clearly a trailblazer, you know, to say the least, because he assures both that the the information behind him, though he acknowledges all of those who precede him and inspired him, as well as providing that bridge of mentorship and passing the baton for those that follow. Loved it. Just loved listening to the whole human being that he is. Those are my best kinds of people in the world. The one that understands their value in their in the context of a cycle of life. Yeah. You know, he you bring up um, that he said that he knew God 
personally re- reminded me of a Richard Pryor routine. He didn't say personally, he said for himself. For himself, thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. Yeah, but there's a Richard Pryor routine on one of his uh, his comedy albums where he's a minister and he he's talking about how he know how well he knows God. He said, "I know I know him," and I checked. I checked his schedule. <laughs> he knew him so well, he could check God's schedule. <laughs> that's it, right? Yeah. That's, that's but, when, when, you, when you hear a preacher say, yeah, I spoke to God last right. night. I, I you checked know? your schedule. <laughs> so, it gets real direct. Yeah, Ambassador, so when you, I mean, I think one of the values that, you know, I've found in through this, this, this podcast is the opportunity to um, highlight some of the history, right? I mean, we we deal with contemporary stuff too, but I and I think that's important. I think it's important to acknowledge what's happening now and who's doing what now. But there's been so the absence of coverage for some of these subjects in person, people that we're talking about, has been so glaring, right? If it, it's it's been a good ex- part of this experience for me to be able to have people on that can share some firsthand knowledge, like Chef Joe. I mean that. Him talking about Leah Chase and and Ed and Lewis firsthand to me is just you know that that stuff that should go in the history books, and not just people who who he passed by, but that he actually lived and immersed with, that he shared with, that he can touch, that he misses. It's with whom he would love to sit down and have another meal with. And do we, as a broad culture, know their names? You know, I listen to young people now reference folks as OGs. You want to say, he's what, 52, (laughs) 49? OGs, no, we really need to go much further back. If we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter as a slogan, as a protest, as an insistence, we need to really do the work ourselves. Are we asking um, about that? Are we waiting for someone to affirm that? It's our job just to hear about the investment of continuity that exists. It's just unsung. And so it's our work to unearth that. And having someone like Chef Joe on just this Hall of Fame, when you know, when you, if you go online and you look at the list of people he reckons, he recognizes, um, that he references, and then the new names that he he brings on board as well. It's just really a treasure. And we should know his name across the board the same way we know a lot of the television uh, chefs. You know, I take nothing away from those whose names we do know, such as a James Beard, but we should know them while they're walking, while they're right. talking, while they're sharing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's really, really great. And, you know, I haven't been to Savannah, all the places he had made reference to traveling around a number of places, but not having stopped at some of those places. And I, in some cases in the United States, it's the same. It's like the connector spot, you know, the gate to gate connection. And I'm here right now in the shallow South. Louisville doesn't like to call itself the South, but it <laughs> if you're from New York, it's the South. It's all relative. But he talked about being in, from places that where, you know, there are different cultures, Midwest. Louisville con- considers itself the Midwest. And what walks and journeys through here? One of the places I've always heard about um, and have yet to be um, visit is Savannah. I mean, I always hear the most enchanting stories about um, being there. You know, um, the history is 200 years old. Um, It still walks. I think when you had Mashama Bailey on, she even talked about just hearing, waiting in that structure, that old structure that she approached and realizing that while the South had its aching history, that she walked in and also saw and felt the 
the energy of journey through that depot, mm-hmm. right? And how to bring life to that. And and so I was exploring some things about uh, Savannah and because, it, of course, I have to go. I mean, not only was he kind enough to in, invite me, meaning Sh- Chef Randall, but, you know, you want to make sure that people can jump in a car. It's close enough. You can get to and not a lot of places people can't travel to now, but they have, you know, amazing history tours, um, heritage tours and journeys there. Uh, one is Footprints of Savannah and, and another is called the Freedom Trail of Savannah really quite significant and a lot of beds and bed and breakfasts there you know have you been to savannah i have we um we traveled through there had had dinner with chef joe at uh, at good times right and then we also visited uh mashama's restaurant the gray uh my wife and i while we were there in uh, just before the pandemic in in 2019 but it's charming and beautiful picturesque just one of the however you would envision like a, a really beautiful southern city savannah is quaint and charming and and full of music and food well, and a lot of um, bed and breakfasts of old structures. I mean, we talked about one previously um, of a sister who started in Brooklyn and has quite a number of inns and just buying these old hundreds year old spaces built in the 1800s and renovating them, not large, six beds, 10 beds, um, quaint, cozy you know, great continental breakfasts. There's one called the Hamilton Turner Inn in Lafayette Square, which is really wonderful as I've been looking online and desiring and the Eliza Thomas Thompson House. And I know that these are places that I'd rather stay. When I travel abroad, I'm not always at the large, I won't say their names, hotels. I really Mm -hmm. like participating and contributing to the family owners and making sure that any resource spent high or low dollar is go- going right into the hands of the families who put in the effort. You get to feel the heartbeat, you know. There's another one, Azalea in. You know, we have a name like my family does with all these hieroglyphic words. You want to make sure you pronounce You're something. You're saying it right. <laughs> Azalea, yeah, you want to say that. But just charming, just really rich. And it makes me want to jump in a buggy Right here from Louisville, it's only, and you notice I'm, I've been here long enough to say Louisville instead of Louisville, um, but right from Louisville where you, it's about five hours to Atlanta, right? So you figure just on the other side of that, that's a great journey to stop and start, have breakfast, you know, on the way and meet some of these trails that really speak to the Underground Railroad, the Trail of Tears, the um, soldiers' treks here in the United States that tell you your history. So we're not guessing. It's not anybody else's job. It's ours to really kind of like get some gas, load up, put a basket in the car, in the trunk and map out your spot. Yeah. So let me let me backtrack here because... Yes. I want to nail down what we're doing in Savannah. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to go we're going to go for a hike on yes, the right. Freedom Trail. Is that what it was called? It's called you have you there are two specific ones that are identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the Footprints of Savannah. OK, but both of these are black history and heritage tours. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the Freedom Trail. Excellent. And yeah. um, OK. And then we are we're going to book a room. At the yeah. Eliza Thompson house. How's that sound? Well, we could, depending on how many goes. So if we have 20 folks, we could split where people journey and swap. So you have the 
as I mentioned, the Eliza Thompson house. And I'm really curious about this Azalea, Azalea Inn um, uh, and Villas. Okay. All of them are pretty small. So we want to make sure if it's, if it's just a few of us, we can swap and spend the night in one and have breakfast in another. And the other. All right. So we, we have the place we're going to lay. Our, we have the places we're going to lay our heads. We have the exercise yeah. we're going to get and the uh, information we're going to take in during these hikes. Okay. Now all we need is a place to eat. So I say the Gray and Good Times Gray Jazz Bar and Restaurant. That All of that Those sounds two. good. I was taking notes while you all were talking. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we're doing, how we move. Yeah. Ambassador Shabazz in Savannah, Georgia. Next. Next. I'll see you soon. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.